3: Hey, my friends. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. You know, I usually do this show standing up, both because they say that if you want to sound authoritative and on top of your game, you should be standing. And also because sitting is the new smoking, and we need to be doing less of it. But I am sitting today, and not just sitting, I am sitting in a reclining chair Because just two hours ago, we finished our 18th Main Street Vegan Academy, which is for me pretty much 24-7 for about a week. But oh golly, it is the most wonderful thing. And I came home and I turned on my email and one of the young men who went through the class, we had five guys this time out of our 18 students, we had five male vegans, which is great. It was so fascinating. His sister has applied for the Academy, and now we're going to be having – having familial relatives showing up and that's a wonderful wonderful thing so thanks to everybody who is and has been part of mainstream vegan academy and thanks to everybody who is part of this mainstream vegan podcast and that would be all of you who are listening today oh we're going to have some delicious good fun after the break we're going to be talking with eddie garza who has done all sorts of amazing things, most recently authoring Salud, Vegan Mexican Cookbook. And right now, we're going to be speaking with someone who goes way back in the food world and is doing the most exciting thing right now, and that is Kay Stepkin. Kay opened the Bread Shop, Chicago's first modern-day vegetarian eatery, in 1971. That ran through 1996 as a whole-grain bakery, bulk-and-packaged food store. And across the street was the restaurant, Bread Shop Kitchen. It's now called the Chicago Diner, owned by two former employees, and you could go there to this very day. Kay was president of the Chicago Vegetarian Society for six years. She's taught cooking classes. She started the nonprofit Go Veggie in 2001, and it is now doing business as the National Vegetarian Museum. The National Vegetarian Museum opened in Chicago in February of this year. They had a big party. About a 100 people showed up. And they're now visiting all of Chicago's neighborhoods through the library system. And their long-term plans are to find a permanent and larger home in a Chicago cultural institution, expand, and then send the traveling exhibit around the country. Welcome, Kay Stepkin.
0: Thank you, Victoria. I'm delighted
3: to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you. So, what gave you the idea? It sounds so huge, a national museum.
0: Um Uh, The only way that I could handle it is by taking one step at a time. (laughs) Um, uh, Because actually, once I opened, it got even huger. There was just so much going on with it. But it started like in a very tiny way. Uh, It was about four years ago. um, And I was um, invited um, by Michael James. He had started Heartland Cafe. Uh, in Chicago, it was a vegetarian. It is a vegetarian-friendly restaurant in Chicago, the first one. And uh, he invited me to be on his weekly radio show and talk about Chicago's vegetarian history. And I naively thought that I knew Chicago's vegetarian history at the time, so I went on his show. And talked about it. Um, I thought that, that, although I knew there were vegetarians in Chicago in the early 1900s, I thought our history uh, with organizations started in the late 60s. Um, but after being on that show, I started getting phone calls to give talks at other organizations in Chicago. Uh, and so that sent me to the library, to the Internet, uh, to learn all that I could. And to my total shock, I learned that there was a very strong movement in our country in the mid-1800s, and that the epicenter of it, although it had started in Philadelphia, by the late 1800s and the Chicago Exposition, called the Columbian Exposition, by the late 1800s, the epicenter had moved to Chicago. Um, That was the start of all this, because I realized that if I didn't know Anything about our history? Neither did most anyone else. Um, and I think that knowing history, knowing your history, is something very important. Um, and uh, especially for young people, I want them to know that they have a strong, long-term, solid, caring community behind them. Um, uh and that they they could learn from other people. They do not have to repeat our mistakes, that they have the support and the resources of those who came before. Um and I I believe that knowing our history will make our great movement even stronger. And that that was my motivation. And that's my motivation.
3: Yes, and you actually honored me a great deal in letting me um be part of that and and tape a little um... History um, presentation for you. I think it's under five minutes, but we shot for five hours <laughs> <I know. laughs> to get that. And uh, I'll put the link on the Main Street Vegan show notes to uh, to Vimeo so that people can watch that. It's so wonderful. when I think of museum, in fact, because I did spend 10 years living in the Chicago area, the word museum to me looks like that great big Art Institute on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. Now, we're well, not quite talking in about front of that. It. <laughs> so, so tell us, what it, it, describe, if someone were to go today and say, I want to see this museum, what are they going to see?
0: The National Vegetarian Museum is starting as a traveling museum. Uh, it's doing the... couple of reasons. Uh, one, we don't have to build a building for it. We don't have to pay rent. Um, But but equally important, we are able to travel uh, to all the neighborhoods. Chicago is a city of neighborhoods. And uh, we're able to travel to all the Chicago neighborhoods and bring the museum to people. And I think that is a very good start for it. Uh, So right now we are in the Chicago Public Library system. We are in our second library. Um, in about a week or a week and a half we 'll be moving to our third library um, and we have been uh, we 've been very welcomed and uh, and I believe that we 're reaching people that might not otherwise have traveled across the city uh, to visit the museum So what
3: will uh, people learn when they go there?
0: Oh my gosh. Um, we okay. The museum itself consists of twelve huge panels. Each one's about seven or eight feet tall and about three feet wide, um, and, uh, and covers a different aspect. Some with our ancient history, some uh, some, some with our present history. We have a, we have two panels just on Chicago. We have. Um, uh, uh, nationwide, uh, we have different organizations that we highlight. We have a TV monitor where your video is, it's on a stand, uh, where people can just watch your video, which also covers our ancient history and, and our present, actually our present vegan, <laughs> uh, movement. Uh, we also have a three-fold takeaway. Um, for people um, that offers resources uh, for those interested in learning more. So it recommends books. It has local restaurants, uh, national groups, local groups. Um, this first flyer that we created has one page focusing just on the environment. Uh, future ones will focus on health and will focus on the animals. We also bring programs to each venue that we visit. So we have um, speakers. Um, uh, we give a guided docent-like tour of the museum. Um, we haven't done this yet, but we also plan to show documentary movies. We can give a cooking demo. It just depends what what the venue is looking for. So, okay, uh,
3: I, I know that you you talk in in the museum about the entire movement and the history of the movement. And and you do call it vegetarian instead of vegan which is of course I think very important because vegan didn't even enter the world as as a, a word or or as a thing until 1944. So are there other reasons why you're sticking with vegetarian in terms of the museum?
0: Um that's really it like you can't talk about our our history without talking about vegetarianism. That is our history. Um But really, the movement today is a vegan movement, and there's, you know, study after study which shows us that eating dairy products is really the same as eating meat. It's just as bad for our health, it's just as bad for the animals, it's just as bad for the environment. So uh, so today's movement is a vegan movement. I can um,
3: certainly see that, and I think I actually said that in the history of presentation for you guys, and it's interesting because when you and I started in all this, it was weird enough to be a vegetarian. So vegans <laughs> were just, I mean, incredibly admirable, but they just seemed like the Mother Teresa's of the movement, and the rest of us were, you know, just sort of <laughs> auxiliary agree. But times have changed. So I, I realize you're talking about the entire movement, um, nationally and internationally, but because you are in Chicago, you do have some really interesting, specifically Chicago stories. So is there a hero or two, uh, in the Chicago vegetarian history that you particularly find fascinating?
0: Oh, um, I do know that Bernard Jensen had a health food store in Chicago yeah. uh, back in the early 90s, uh, uh, the early 1900s. Um, it was downtown. We, um, uh, we had... Uh, also in the early 1900s, we had restaurants downtown. And in our museum exhibit, we show uh, not exactly a menu, but an advertisement from one of these restaurants. Um, the national um, uh, was called the... Uh, I can't think of it. Don't the name worry about it.
3: You can go to the museum, and then you'll see.
0: So <laughs> it, right. It's very interesting. Oh, to the National that... Hygiene Society. Oh, yes, uh, yes. They had a National presence Hygiene. in Chicago. Um, actually, in the, in the late 60s, they had a presence mm-hmm. here. They're still in existence. They've changed their name, I think, to the National uh, Health Organization.
3: Yeah, National and Health They might be
0: located out of Florida now.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, um, it is but- interesting to me that most people think of Chicago as hog butcher to the world, as the poem says. And yet even when that was going on and the biggest stockyards in the country were in Chicago, there was a vegetarian presence as well, which is really interesting. And my own kind of Chicago history when I lived there in the 1970s was to go to the south side and go to the Albania uh no, the oh, Fultonia. Alvinia, Fulton. Alvinia Fulton, the Fultonia Health Food Store. And was, she there was also. A, yeah, she was a naturopathic doctor who inspired the comedian Dick Gregory yeah. to, to go vegan and really spread the message of veganism, raw food, and juicing uh, to the country at large and also in the African-American communi- community in a way that no one had before. So there's a lot of Chicago
0: going on. There's a lot, yeah. Actually, the African-American community, uh, ha- out of proportion to their numbers, so many of them are vegetarians and vegans. And I first noticed that when I opened the bread shop um, uh, just by who my customers were.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: so that's very interesting, and I'm very excited to be able to, it's one of the reasons I'm excited to be able to travel the neighborhoods of Chicago and get to everybody here.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's very cool. And I remember there was—I think the group was called the Black Hebrews—who had a raw food restaurant in Chicago in the oh, seventies. They, yeah. they
0: still do. Yeah, oh. It still it was called Soul Vegetarian East. Now they're now it's the same restaurant though. They're called Original Soul Vegetarian. And they actually did, not too long ago opened a second location mm. um, in in our metro train station. Well, that was where I had my first raw pie <laughs> and And people that
3: have just gone vegan recently, and they have all kinds of you know vegan things to choose from, and we even have to be a little bit discerning now and not have too many desserts and too many treats. But back in the day, they just didn't exist and, and to go someplace and you could have raw pie and it really tasted like pie <laughs> it was quite an experience. Yeah. So, so Kate, just in your own history, because you, you did enter this, you know, a long time ago. I understand we're the elder states people of, of this movement. How did you become aware of all these connections, food, health, animals, environment?
0: Uh, the short answer is that I, and the general answer is, it's because I love to read. And once I get interested in something, I tend to read more about it. But the specific answer is, I just happened one day upon the book Thunderball, which was a James, which is a James Bond thriller. And I picked this up in the 1960s. I had uh, temporarily, I had left Chicago, I was living in Berkeley for a while, and uh, one night my roommate uh, uh, was out and I was just sort of browsing through her books and I came across Thunderball and in it, um, a bond is like very run down, he's exhausted, um, too much drinking, not enough sleep, eating poorly, and his boss M forces, insists that he go and visit a health farm. Um, and this i I don't know why I just this just struck an absolute chord in me. I found this so interesting um and M gave him a little talk on on bread and how we we remove i don't know I'm making up the number, but how we remove two dozen nutrients from bread and we add back five and we call it enriched and it It struck a chord in me, and I went to the library the next day and i You know, came home with a couple of armfuls of books um, and started reading. Um, It did take me like another five years to become a vegetarian. Um, And in that time, I did not meet another vegetarian uh, until I opened the bread shop in 1971.
3: Oh, and then then you met them all. So, Kay Stepkin, you guys, you need to know this woman because she really is a treasure. She hosted uh, the Go Veggie TV cooking series on the Comcast channel. She wrote a biweekly vegan column, The Veggie Cook, that ran in the Chicago Tribune from 2011 to 2015, and she is now the founder and curator of the National Vegetarian Museum. So if you're anywhere near Chicago, go visit. If you are not, get to the website, VegMuse.org. The Facebook page is VegMuse, M-U-S-E. Uh, contact Kay uh, for a traveling exhibit when all that starts, because you need some stuff on the books for... Twenty eighteen and nineteen, right, Kay? That's right, yes we do. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for being part of the Main Street Vegan program and for all you do to make the world saner and healthier. And everybody else. You
0: too, Victoria.
3: Thank you. Stay with us. We're gonna be talking good Mexican food.
2: listening to main street vegan with victoria moran if you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest we invite you to follow victoria underscore moran on twitter or email her at Main Vegan at unityonlineradio.org now back to main street vegan
3: welcome back lovely person i'm so happy you're here just want to alert you to what's going on on the MainStreetVegan.net blog this week. When we talked about Kay Stepkin starting the bread shop in 1971, that was the exact year that a young man named Nathaniel Altman in a suburb of Chicago was typing the first book about vegetarianism to be published in the U.S. in the 20th century, a book called Eating for Life. I know a lot about that book because we were both working at the same place, and I had an electric typewriter, and he would bring me each chapter to type, and when that book came out in 1974, I thought, wow, I know an author. (laughs) Maybe someday I can be one. Well, Nathaniel has written almost 30 books, and he has recently republished a really important book called The Nonviolent Revolution. And if you watch the news or read the news, you know that we need one of those and we need it in the worst way. So the blog is an interview with Nathaniel Altman about nonviolence. I highly recommend that you check it out over there at MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. Also, want to let you know that I will be this weekend, we're talking April the uh 7th, 8th, 9th in Nashville for the Nashville Veg Fest. So if that is your part of the world or even close to your part of the world, it's gonna be two fabulous days full of amazing speakers. I know one of them is the bodybuilder Robert Cheek. I always love to see Robert Cheek because he makes me want to go to the gym. So hope to see some of you guys in Nashville. And now, oh, I'm so happy to be introducing to you somebody that I miss so much. I got to know him when he lived in New York City, and now he is back in his native Texas, and that is Eddie Garza, Senior Manager of Food and Nutrition for the Humane Society of the United States and author of Salud, Vegan Mexican Cookbook a collection of 150 mouth-watering Mexican recipes from tamales to churros. Garza and his work to reform food systems in Latino communities have been featured in a wide variety of media outlets in the U.S. and Latin America, including CNN, Telemundo, Univision, Fox News Latino, TV Azteca, and Hola TV, And I'll also tell you that you just might not be listening to this podcast today had it not been for Eddie Garza and his former employee with um, uh, Mercy for Animals. They actually sponsored the tour for the Main Street Vegan book back in 2012 and just made lots and lots happen. And I was on that tour when the people from Unity Online Radio called and said, you want to do a show? So, you know, it's all connected and just... Hang out with vegans and you never know where life will take you. Maybe it'll take you to Mexico and you can get some great food. Welcome, Eddie Garza.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Victoria. I miss you, too, and I miss everybody in New York. Uh, I will say uh, I, I was in Texas. I was in my native Texas up until the last uh, month where oh. you know I, I recently moved to Miami, Florida. So that's one of the reasons oh. I got a little bit confused about the time zone. Uh, but, yeah, it's so exciting to be here with you, and it's so exciting to hear all about what you're doing. Uh, I, you know previously did a course at Main Street Vegan Academy, so that was really exciting. And I just feel like, you know, we are so connected in so many different ways spiritually, uh, also, you know, just all the work that we've done to reform nutrition, health, and also, you know, to protect animals. So thank you so much for having me.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. So you know, you mentioned one of those spiritual connections. So let's just talk about that one first. You and I both are what I call obesity survivors. So tell us a little bit about your story on that.
4: Yeah, as uh, you know, one of the things that we first connected about was the issue of, um, you know, being overweight and struggling with weight all of our lives. And I, uh, like many Latino children growing up in South Texas, I grew up on the South Texas-Mexican border uh, in a town called Brownsville. Um, Like many of the kids there, I suffered from, you know, originally it was just being overweight and then eventually uh, eating so much. And a lot of it was you know, connected to my feelings and feeling insecure about other issues that were going on in my life. That I, um, you know, ate. I ate my feelings, you know, as many people do. But at the same time, there were so many kids there who were just eating a lot of foods that were just not good for them. Um, I grew to be two, three hundred, it was about three hundred and ten pounds. that was my highest weight, and I'm five seven, so that's really big for somebody that short. And it really wasn't until I connected with somebody at a school that I taught at in Texas who introduced me to a better way of eating and a better way of living. And that is when naturally I ended up losing more than half of that weight just by following a plant-strong diet. Uh, It started out by doing eating less meat, kind of like a meatless Monday. I didn't call it that then, but it was certainly eating less meat and eating more fruits and vegetables and then slowly transitioning to vegetarian and eventually a completely plant-based vegan diet. And then, of course, that led to so many other revelations in my life that uh, that have led to just a more overall compassionate way of living.
3: Great story. And how long have you kept the weight off?
4: So I've maintained a pretty pretty healthy-ish, you know, it goes up five, goes down five, uh, four, I guess now it's close to 15 years.
3: That is what I think, Eddie, in this particular context, we need to get out into the world. Because people lose weight all the time. It's just like people get married all the time. <laughs> they get divorced all the time. So what if there were some way that you could guarantee you get married and you will live happily ever after? Well, would that be a thing? And we kind of have that about food. So thank you so much for sharing your story. Now, it's interesting to me that you talked about being an overweight Latino kid because just this week I was doing some research for one of my talks for the Academy and found some really frightening statistics about childhood obesity, and it was Hispanic little boys who were in the highest percentile. I mean, lots of kids are are fat, uh, white kids, black kids, but it was Hispanic kids, mostly boys, who were at the highest percentage of being obese as children, which we know sets people up for all kinds of health problems in later life. Is there some reason for that that you know of?
4: You know, there isn't just one or two or even, you know, five or ten reasons. Uh, There, You know, I'm I'm currently at a conference. uh, It's called Hispanicize, and it's about uh, just kind of the growing growing population of Latinos from different parts of Latin America and everybody seems to have different struggles. So you can't really just point to one or two different things, but we can certainly say that in most of Latin America, the majority of the people, um, who are from there were, you know, they don't come from a background where they can eat a lot of those highly processed and high meat diets. For instance, in, um, In Mexico, you know, before the Europeans came to Mexico, the majority of the foods that were eaten were things like corn and beans, squashes, other whole grains. Amaranth was a a big food that was eaten there. And, um, you know, when the Spanish came in and brought their pork and all the other animal products, they brought in fried foods. It's because of the pork that was, you know, all that fried food was introduced uh, that the people – in Mexico started having some of the bigger problems they're having. So that's why there's a huge movement right now in Mexico to bring back a lot of those indigenous foods. Now, I can say that a lot of the people um, that I've talked to during this conference have talked about you know, growing up in, in impoverished areas where they have had to eat a lot of foods because they feel like this might be the only spurt of maybe a week out of an entire month where they had Good food. So they would just eat and eat and eat during that entire week. Of course, now with food being so cheap, people are still eating that same way where they're eating a lot of those really cheap hamburgers. You can eat, you can feed an entire family with really cheap, horrible food. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of food that you keep, you know as we've watched in many documentaries and as we've read in many books, those types of foods just continue to to make you want to eat more because they're not really nourishing your body. They're not giving you the things that you need, things that you get from healthy fruits and vegetables and especially, you know, hearty greens. And that is, I think, one of the reasons that this, this problem is pervasive. It's because we're still eating in that way. Like we're we don't have enough, so we're wanting to eat more. And that's what I've been hearing a lot. Uh, and I've been having a lot of conversations with people here at this conference who they a lot of us know that we are not eating the foods that we should be eating. We should be eating better, but a lot of people just don't really know how to get started. So that was one of the reasons that I was really excited about writing this book is that I wanted to show people that it's really easy to enjoy all the foods that we grew up eating, but not – you know, eat all the foods that uh, that were the traditional really bad-for-you foods, but more taking it back to the plant-based uh, origins, but keeping those same flavors that we've grown accustomed to. Because, you know, we all like the taste of that hamburger, but if there's a way that we can eat that hamburger and enjoy those flavors without contributing to, you know, bad health, and plus, you know, all the animal cruelty involved, uh, this is something that's really great for everybody. So it's been really exciting to work on this particular project.
3: Well, it's a beautiful book. Now, you grew up not just eating the wonderful traditional foods, but also preparing some of them in the kitchen with your grandmother, to whom you dedicate the book. What did you learn from her?
4: You know, I learned everything there is to know about the Mexican kitchen. And um, it was it was really what was really exciting about writing the book is that for me, a lot of the foods that I had that I included in the book—it was the very first time that I had actually put those recipes on paper. It was something that I just kind of knew by the texture, by the feel, by the smell, by just like kind of seeing how much I would put as, as a kid. It was nice to put that into paper. Uh, the, the book itself was really exciting. Um, I spent. The majority of my childhood in the kitchen with my grandmother. Um, when my brother was outside playing ball with his friends, I was just in the kitchen with my grandmother, just wanting to know more about what she was doing and wanting to get my hands in there. So it's something that's always been exciting to me. And I, I, I it's really amazing to have been able to write this book during a time that my grandmother is still alive and be able to celebrate wow. it with me. So um, it's it's there's so much beauty and so much love that It was just so much love that we shared in that kitchen, and I wanted to give that love back in a way that was really loving to our bodies and to the planet.
3: Oh, that's beautiful. What a a lovely story. So how did you adapt traditional recipes? I know from just finishing the first couple of rounds on the Main Street Vegan Cookbook with J.L. Fields that we took recipes from various academy graduates from different cultures around the world and it was actually my co-author's job to come through and pick out the ones that were book worthy i mean they're all worth eating <laughs> <So> <laughs> how, how does you deal with that what makes a recipe book worthy
4: you know that's a really great question i i think that one of the things that makes uh recipe bookworthy is something that you just do over and over and over and over at the house. And whenever you invite friends over, they request that you make that for them. So one of the recipes that I knew was going to be super bookworthy was my garbanzo chorizo recipe, which is a garbanzo bean uh, or rather a chickpea-based chorizo, which is a Mexican, highly spiced Mexican sausage that has bit of a vinegary, vinegary flavor, uh, and it's traditionally made with pork. One of the recipes that my grandmother used to make when we were ki- when we were kids was uh, a chorizo that was really, really, really highly spiced with uh, different types of chili powders, different types of Unexpected spices like cinnamon and clove. And I made that recipe for this book because it was something that made its way into every dish that I made at home for uh, my moyete that I include in the breakfast section to my uh, tofu scramble and chorizo. That's something I grew up eating pretty much every single weekend. And it's also so versatile that I used it for a pizza topping. So I had to include that. Of course, there are other things that people really love to eat, like tamales, which is one of the most. Um, well-known foods uh in mexican culture it's eaten at so many different holidays it's something that every family has to be able to make that or has has that for you know big celebrations like christmas or even like new year's so that makes a recipe or a, a recipe book worthy for me
3: well you were telling me during um the break before we started that for somebody who's a little bit of a shy cook when I enter into a type of cuisine that's new to me, that I should start with the breakfast mollete. And I'm looking at, it just looks so good. For those of you who don't know what a mollete is, which I didn't until 15 minutes ago, it is an open-faced breakfast sandwich, and this one has refried black beans It's got vegan chorizo, shredded vegan white cheese, garnished with some pico de gallo and some avocado. That sounds so good. And I love breakfast. I love a really hearty, solid breakfast. Dinner, you know, I could have a a bowl of oatmeal and I'm fine. But breakfast, I need to feel like I ate. And this just sounds like heaven.
4: Yeah, that's uh, it's like I said, one of my favorite recipes and one that's not really super well known in the United States. It's something that when you go to Mexico, especially central Mexico, everybody eats that for breakfast. It's just like your traditional beans and toast that every culture has. But this is our version. So it's really delicious and everybody should try that. It's going to become a family favorite. I guarantee it.
3: And something that's just a little bit of trivia I remember when I learned that refried beans weren't ever fried. How did they get to be called refried?
4: You know, that's a that's a really good question. So the word uh, refried uh, doesn't have really the same meaning as refrito. It doesn't actually mean like fried again. It just kind of means like hard fried. So uh, it's not going to be like a twice baked potato. It's just going to be like a really really baked potatoes so that's really the word refried it's just beans that are fried uh and they're hard fried does that make sense so it does make sense
3: (laughs) except when i have purchased vegan refried beans in a can they don't have any oil in them or any fat so when i think of fried i think of you throw something in some hot fat
4: yeah i mean that's certainly a a way to do it uh one of the things that i like to do on occasion i didn't include this in the book although a lot of the recipes that i have in there are very low oil but something that i've recently been doing is doing the um you know it's not really fried but it's just using a little bit of vegetable broth or even just a little bit of water to get the onion sauteed uh water sauteed if you will and then you can have a really delicious fat-free meal and i do that a lot at home I, i do the you know the I do use oil in a lot of the recipes, uh, but it is very minimal oil. You'll notice that even the garbanzo chorizo recipe, you'll have less than half the fat of traditional chorizo. And, of course, you'll have all the flavor and all the benefits of eating more fruits and vegetables or garbanzo beans in this case. Uh, but its uh, you'll notice that there are so many different ways to... To cook the foods and something that i do offer are alternatives for flautas which is traditionally fried i have a baked flauta in this one Mm. and then at the same time there is something called a chile relleno that's usually an egg battered fried um, poblano pepper i have that with uh, an aquafaba egg and then i've got another version that is just a it's a roasted chile relleno so there you go again with another one that is a healthier version of a traditional meal so there are so many different variations for people who are looking for gluten-free, for people who are looking for just kind of lower fat, for anybody who just wants to explore Mexican food and even border town Tex-Mex, this is a great place to start.
3: Mm. Well, it, it looks like a wonderful book, and it does look like the balance between traditional flavors and and a, a healthier take on things. You, you, you've done really well. So when you. you're not cooking and going to conferences and moving places that I don't know you've moved. Um, you <laughs> work for the Humane Society of the United States, a senior manager of food and nutrition. That sounds like a big job. What do you do there?
4: Thank you. It's uh, It's an awesome job. I can tell you that uh, we get to work with large institutions like K-12 school districts, universities, hospitals, and other main corporate cafeterias to get their um, staff excited and their guests excited about eating more plant-based foods. Uh, we work with their teams on you know, culinary trainings where we teach them how to make the food taste delicious. We work with them on developing completely plant-based dining halls like the one that started at the University of North Texas by one of my colleagues, Ken Botts, and actually two of my colleagues, and uh, Chef Wanda White. They were the two who spearheaded that. It was the very first all-vegan dining hall in the country, and since then, We've had so many more jump on board because of their work and because of the work that the Humane Society allows us to do working with these institutions. Uh, We've worked with some of the largest school districts to add different plant-based meal programs like a Meatless Monday or a Lean and Green Day, as some schools call it, uh, at Los Angeles Unified School District, the second largest school district in the country. They offer meat-free meals, only meat-free meals, every single Monday, and that's like like about 700,000 meals every Monday that are completely meatless. And that's really exciting. And we also work with schools all over the country. Here in Miami-Dade, they do a Lean in Green program, which is very similar to the Meatless Monday program, just with a different name. And we've even worked with schools in Texas, the Houston Independent School District and even Dallas ISD, both launched really innovative programs. And uh, I know that one of my colleagues who works in Texas has been working with a school district, actually two school districts in the Dallas area that have launched vegan and vegetarian dining areas in their high school cafeterias. So all that work is really exciting. Yeah, In Texas,
3: uh, in a high school, oh my gosh.
4: You know, one of the programs that I was also really excited about, um, my focus is working on areas that are high Hispanic populations. And we work with a school district in South Texas called Laredo Independent School District. Now, their population for Hispanic children is upwards of 99%. And one of the cool programs that we worked with uh, with them is we worked with their culinary students. A lot of them are going to school to get their culinary associate's degrees while they're in high school. And worked with them on learning how to make traditional Mexican foods in a plant-based way. And uh, they did this whole Top Chef competition. And the kids were really excited about their creations. And they were so proud of the fact that they were able to explore more of their culture and also find, it, find a way to make their food healthier. It's, it was really exciting.
3: Well, that is exciting, all the stuff that you're doing in that way. I know uh, one of my uh, Main Street Vegan Academy graduates, Rindala Alajaji, is part of the Animal Welfare Collective at NYU, and they're working on getting a vegan dining hall. And you would think, NYU, liberal New York, that'll happen in a week. Well, it's tough. It's very tough to get big institutions like that to, to make a switch so they're working on it over there at NYU and I just wish them all kinds of success that that would happen and I know that they've gotten help from HSUS and PETA and some other organizations. But, you know, I think we don't really understand until we've done something like what you do every day of, of what a, a behemoth these, these things are. These are big institutions that have always done things a certain way and they're connected to... Food service companies and other sorts of of businesses and organizations that are invested in the status quo. So there's more to it than meets the eye.
4: Yeah, I think it's really exciting that so many institutions are moving in this direction. Like I said, we're we're working with institutions all over the country, Arizona, California, not just talking about both coasts. We're talking about places in the middle of the country that are doing these changes because they know it's good for the planet. They know it's good for the, the health of their guests. And of course... This is great for animals all over, you know, all over the world uh, that institutions are taking part in these programs uh, from Brazil to, you know, uh, Colombia, all the way to the other side of the world. I mean, people all over the world are moving in this direction, and it's really amazing to see that this change is happening so fast because we know that it's it's the future. The future of the planet is to go plant-based to put more plants on our plates and take away a lot of the meat that we're that we're currently using that's consuming a lot of, you know, natural resources that we need for, for the planet. You know, yeah. being here in Miami, I've been especially uh, in tune to a lot of the stuff that is taking place here that has to do with environmental degradation. So that's one of the really big things that I've been noticing now is that there are big changes happening um, in the gastronomic scene here because of that reason. So it's really cool. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, that is wonderful when people can see things. And I know a friend from Miami was telling me that now every time it rains hard, there's just incredible flooding, which which didn't used to happen, and that that is tied to the higher ocean levels. But to see that the culinary community there is responding is really, really uh, positive. So, Eddie, people make this dietary change for a lot of reasons, and we know about the health and the environment and the animals, but you go all over talking to a lot of people. So what do you see? What is bringing more people over today?
4: You know, I think what's bringing a lot of people over today is the fact that we've recognized that we are not all made the same. And one of the really great things about working with the HSUS is they they have allowed me to go into a community that was largely untapped. Um, You know, you've got people going into Mexico saying, hey, let's go do this do this thing, and here are some recipes. But it really wasn't until we were able to bring them Mexican recipes that made sense for them that they were able to adopt all these changes. So that's something that a lot of our colleagues are doing. I'm going to be in New York in a few weeks uh, working with a school district in West New York, New Jersey, because um, they really want to move in this direction, but they don't know how with a large Dominican and Cuban population. So being somebody who's familiar with that cuisine, I'm coming in to work with them with my uh, with my team. Uh my colleague Kate Watts initiated a conversation and we're gonna be working together with our dietitian, our staff dietitian. Um uh Carla Dumas, who's the former food, um, she's actually the former menu planner for Sarasota Public Schools here in Florida, uh, who was one of the first ones to do a really awesome Meatless Monday program. So we snagged her and now she's working with us. But we're going to be going in there and doing a Spanish language culinary training for their cafeteria staff because that's what's been holding them back, to bring familiar foods, to bring um, a language that they understood, and people who know that they understand their culture. So I think that's really what's helping to change a lot of... Uh, are bringing a lot of people on is that we do have this capacity to expand into different areas and really understand who we're talking to and really show them that we're interested in helping and we want everybody to, to participate, not just because it's going to help animals or the environment, but you know everybody deserves to have healthy food. Everybody yeah. really does deserve to have healthy food. And for many kids who are in these uh, school districts, in these public school districts, this is the only meal that they're going to have in the day, not for all of them, but for many of them it's the only full meal that they're going to have and it's great to give them something really healthy.
3: Oh, for sure. And and so wonderful that this way of eating is becoming widespread enough that we really are getting to specialize uh, and and bring it to people with with different cultural approaches. I remember, oh, gosh, Eddie, you would not have liked me when I was 15 years old. You know, I was arrogant. I think a lot of 19-year-olds are. And at the time, I'd lost a lot of weight with Weight Watchers, which has now grown and evolved as everything does and, and, and has become wonderful in so many ways. But at that time, everybody who went to Weight Watchers was on the same diet. And you had to eat fish five times a <laughs> week and all this stuff. And I became a lecturer for Weight Watchers. And I can remember almost every week after the big meeting, the new people would stay and get to ask their questions. And somebody would raise a hand and say, where did tortillas fit in? And I'd say, well, they're not on the program. We didn't call it a diet, but it was. And I would just say, they're not on the program. Don't eat them. They're not on the program. And I would think, what, what's the big deal? You know, you get two slices of bread a day. What's this tortilla thing? And they would <laughs> come back. And at 19, of course, I didn't understand that when something is part of your culture, you, you need a reason to to do something different. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with tortillas. And I learned recently what a fabulous source of calcium corn tortillas are. But to <laughs> just use that as an example, you know, we've got to walk in somebody else's shoes to really be helpful.
4: Absolutely. I think that is right on um you know and that's even something i've been noticing with one latin culture to another you know you tell somebody to eat tortillas and or you you go to a school district and tell people hey you know you've got a lot of latin students here's a burrito recipe you know first of all if we can get real burritos aren't really a mexican food they're a tex-mex food uh sure the original burrito is northern mexican but the burrito that we know today is largely an american food and imagine taking a burrito which is so far removed really from mexican truly mexican culture and try to implement that in a place where there are mostly dominican people you're not talking their language at all so uh yeah i think it's really important to know your audience and know how to truly help the audience it's 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 really great that That You mentioned the tortilla because I was thinking so many things about that.
3: Uh, Well, Eddie, in our last few minutes, you've helped so many people go vegan, move toward a vegan diet. Where do you start then? Let's just take standard conglomerate human being. What do you say to this person?
4: You know, I would say that a Meatless Monday is really a great start. My colleague, Christy Middleton, just wrote a fabulous book called Meatless. And in that book, she teaches so many different ways on how you can start making small changes and really making small dietary changes, but really large changes in everything else you do. Like, um, So rather, in everything else that happens, you start being more conscious about what you're eating, and then you might... From that point on, decide to go meatless another day because you notice that you're starting to feel better and you notice that you're doing better for the environment. You notice you're being a champion for animals. Uh, But meatless is a really great way to to start that that book because it's going to show you how you can start adding more meat-free meals to your diet, whether it's doing a Meatless Monday or doing a vegan before 6. But I would start incrementally. I didn't go vegan, you know, cold tofurkey. I went vegan very slowly. I started with eating less meat. And I started by doing, you know, one day, one meal, um, going to two days, going to three days. And eventually I started noticing that I felt so much better after those days that I went meatless that I ended up going full vegetarian and eventually all vegan. Um, But, you know, I would say it's not about perfection. It's really about progress and noticing the progress that you're making for the planet, for yourself. That's really where you need to start looking at. And it's like, do you remember... One of the things with Weight Watchers, I did Weight Watchers for my, you know, myself, the very, very beginning. And one of the things that they always said was just because you messed up on this one day doesn't mean that you throw it all away. You every day, like with a yoga practice, is a different day. Like you go to the gym and you notice that you might be able to lift, say, I don't know, 150 deadlift one day. Not that I can, but if I could, uh, you know, the next day you might not be able to, and then you go back down. Um, but it's all about progress and it's all about noticing that every little thing you do is a great step toward, you know, improving yourself and improving, you know, your goals.
3: Uh, so true. And, and one great step is to go out and get yourself a copy of Salud Vegan Mexican Cookbook by Eddie Garza. And you can find Eddie easily online because his first name is spelled E-D-D-I-E. So you can find him at the Eddie Garza on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and I will put the the cookbook's website and all the other information on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net, as well as ways that you can find out more about the National Vegetarian Museum. Next week, one week from today when we live stream, and the podcast will go up shortly after that, We will have Dr. T. Colin Campbell returning to the show along with his son, Thomas M. Campbell, M.D., Because there is a brand new revised edition of the China Study, the classic book that just made so many plant-sourced eaters. And we are going to be talking with them then. I hope that you join us. Thank you, Unity Online Radio, for having us on your esteemed network. Thanks to Jeff Comfort, our capable engineer. And thanks to you, our listeners. God bless you. Eat your veggies.